This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. I've been an editor at Fast Company covering all aspects of our working lives since 2013. And one of the most interesting evolutions that we've documented in that time has been the awakening to the inequalities in all of our workplaces. Sheryl Sandberg's controversial book, Lean In, came out in 2013 and reignited conversations about gender expectations and ambition in the white collar world. And in 2014, many big tech companies started tracking and publishing their often dismal diversity numbers. What has followed in the last half decade has been a painfully slow awakening and often reckoning in many workplaces. But building a more equitable workplace isn't just an issue of what should be done. It's a matter of what must be done. Companies with more diverse workforces have been proven to be more profitable, and company cultures that are more inclusive have been proven to be more productive and happier places to work. These aren't just issues that impact some of us, women, people of color, people with disabilities, and those in the LGBTQ plus community together make up the majority of the workforce, and building a more just workplace impacts those outside of those groups as well. A rising tide truly does lift all boats. It's past time for us to debate if and move into the work of how. This is a journey that will impact every working person. So if you're a new listener, welcome. If you're a regular listener of Secrets of the Most Productive People, welcome back. Either way, thanks for being here. Over the next few months, we'll start to answer the questions of how all of us can go about the job of building a more inclusive workplace. This mission is so big, so layered, that we may only be scratching the surface, but we hope to start or continue these crucial, hard conversations. For these first few episodes of this season, we're going to focus on race in the workplace, and here to help set us on the right track is Dorian St. Fleur, who loyal listeners will remember well from past episodes. Dorian is a race equity strategist and leadership coach who specializes in helping organizations build anti-racist workplaces. Building on her experiences developing DEI strategies for companies including Google and AppNexus, Dorian consults with organizations in order to create customized strategies, learning experiences, and coaching plans that actually move the needle on their diversity, equity, and inclusion goals. Dorianne, welcome back, and thanks for being on the inaugural episode of The New Way We Work. Thanks, Kate. I'm so excited to be here. We we just can't keep you away for long. So... <laughs> And you're really the perfect person. You know, we've we talked in past episodes about microaggressions at work and, you know, your whole work is about building anti-racist workplaces. And this is not a small task. This is not a small topic. We're obviously not going to like <laughs> solve it in the next 20 minutes, but I think maybe because it's so big, it can feel really overwhelming to both individuals and CEOs and managers and companies that kind of don't know where to begin. I think we're all at this point aware that there's a problem. But when you work with companies, what do you hear kind of the, the biggest struggles they are and, and the different parts of their journey and, and how you kind of lead those through, lead them through those parts of the journey? 
Yeah, it's so interesting. So typically the, the, the organizations that I work with or consult with or, or talk to, they're in two big buckets. I'd say the first one is exactly what you said. They just don't know where to start. They don't know what to do. This is a huge problem that impacts not only their organizations, but the world. And like, <laughs> what do I do? Where do I start? And so they just, they're doing nothing. And so mm -hmm. that is the one, that first big bucket. And then the second bucket of folks who still don't know what to do, so they experimented and tried things, but it ended up being the wrong thing. And so it's like, we need help. How do we turn things around? So those to me are the, the two big buckets that when people say, I need to work with an expert, I need to talk to someone, they're typically in one of those two categories. And can you kind of walk me through like what it looks like and how long of it, you know, like, as I said, like, kind of made the joke of like, we're going to solve racism. Like, how do you, how, what does the journey look like at a company? Like how long does that take? You know, is it different for, I'm assuming obviously different for different companies as to where they are in the journey. Like what, what does that look like? Yeah. So I think the first thing is really, even before walking through the journey is really words matter and thinking how we frame it. And so I think the first thing is to even we're not trying to solve racism. Like this is a human condition, right? And there's so many other things that that, that go into that. And so I think instead it's how, how do we create behaviors? How do we create new ways of working and new ways of being with each other that allow people to feel like they belong here? And that's like a, a mouthful, but even in that, so I'm very careful when I'm speaking to folks that it's not a like, we're trying to solve racism, we're trying to, um, and even how I say we're building or we're creating or we're moving toward this anti-racist workplace. It's not that we're solving all the issues. This is just an aspirational goal that for as long as we have this business and as long as humans are working together, we're gonna have to figure out how do we work well together? How does everyone feel like they belong? How do we make everyone feel valued? So that's like the first thing is really just, I guess, putting it in perspective. Um, and so when I'm walking organizations through this process, the journey is, is kind of in, in neatly into three, I'd say, phases. And the first phase is really around needs assessment. I think it's really interesting that a lot of organizations talk about wanting to work toward this inclusive culture, this equitable anti-racist culture. And so the first thing is, all right, let's get some training. Let's do this. Let's change this. And I always like to back it up and rewind a little bit and talk about, well, how do you know what the issues are and how do you know this is the right thing? And so starting with a needs assessment that assesses one, the current state of the culture and what the inclusion sentiment is and what does each employee feel about showing up virtually in person to this organization every day? Um, do I feel like I belong? Do I feel like my manager cares about me? Do I feel like it's just lip service? Like really digging into what do our people think about our culture is a big piece of it. Uh, and the second piece of it is then digging into the infrastructure, as I call it, or the core HR people processes. So what does our onboarding look like? What does our compensation process, our performance reviews, our talent management, like all of these things that, that go on in an employee life cycle, let's assess that. Where are the gaps? Are they equitable? Is it fair? Is there a difference in outcome to, for your promotion trajectory, for example, based on your gender, based on your race, based on your ability. A lot of organizations haven't 
taken the time to dig into that level of detail and to understand if there's an issue with those uh, those different categories and instead either do nothing as we talked about or create solutions that aren't solving the actual problems. I was speaking to someone yesterday and they had just gone through some metrics and data with their organization and they realized that, oh, actually, we're not underrepresented when it comes to Latinx employees. We have a big percentage here. So that's not actually the issue that we need to be solving. And so if they would have went and said, okay, let's hire more Latinx folks and let's do all of these things, that's not helping. The issue is, what about the career advancement? What about the belonging? What about the fact that they don't see there's a big number, but they don't see a lot of themselves in leadership? Like, let's get to the root issue. And that can be done through the needs assessment, which is why huge believer and proponent in that we start there. And so the needs assessment, it sounds like it's, it takes place on like a lot of different levels. So it's one, like assessing your HR practices, but two, it's, it's like doing surveys for employees, right? Because you can, as a manager, like, I think we have an inclusive culture and your employees are not going to tell you like, no, you don't, but it's, (laughs) it's like in these like anonymous surveys or something like that. Right. Yeah. And even if the employees do tell you like, as a manager, I have this team. I want to feel like I'm a good person and I'm doing my best. I'll say, oh, well, Kate's just saying that. It's just her opinion. But when I see the data that my entire team thinks X or 85% of the women on my team thinks Y, that's a different story. And so, yes, those surveys, uh, focus groups, one-on-one interviews, I think those are all levers that we can pull in this needs assessment portion of the assessing the culture to really understand how people think. And then it's really, you can do some cool things with the data. So if I have an organization and let's say on the surface, 70% of these employees feel like this is a great place to belong or they feel like they belong. If I dig in, well, they're only like 2% of people of color at the organization. So yes, mm. 70% feel like <laughs> it's good. However, when we dig into just the this population of people who are underrepresented, they're experiencing this organization completely differently than other people. And you can't really get that those nuances by just having anecdotal data. So really digging into surveys and measuring the demographics there and really having focus groups to add some color and some context to that survey, Um, having one-on-one interviews with people who are super vocal or not vocal to kind of round it out. I think all of that really gives you a fulsome view of what's happening. Yeah, that's true. And that, that makes me think about like, there's, there's different ways you can like data can always be misleading, right? Of like some companies can kind of slice the data, right. In a way that's like, look, we have this many employees of color. And then when you look deeper, it's like, well, they all work in retail, Mm -hmm. you know, or they all work in entry-level positions. It's like, you know, oh sure. Everybody here thinks the culture is inclusive because everybody here is a white guy, you Mm -hmm. know? So of course they think it's all inclusive, (laughs) you know? Like, yeah, we all look alike and we all think alike and we all love it here. So we have no problems. It's, It's interesting too, when you say like looking at the, or coming up with the wrong solutions, that makes me think of, and I wonder what you think about the idea of your, okay, you're, you're trying to make sure that everybody's paid equally, right? So you set like a, a pay floor or pay scales for different positions. And then you say, okay, everybody with these different titles makes within this range. So now we have fixed our, our pay gap problem, but that can even be misleading, right? Because you're not looking at, as you say, like the opportunity for advancement are people of color or women, you know, stuck in lower positions, for years and years and years while like white men get promoted more. So there's 
like all those kind of things you need to look at, right? Exactly. That example is exactly it. So yeah, okay, we all get paid the same today in this role, but then tomorrow you're going to get promoted and I'm not. And so you now are making more than me. Um, or like they're, they're just with the pay specifically, there's just so many different uh, things to consider because even so we all, I'm sure we've heard equal pay for equal work. And so, you know, that's the idea that if you're doing a similar job, the same work that you should be getting paid the same fine. But what if I, as a black woman have been in this position for 10 years, have never been promoted. You have just come out, uh, from the, from grad school or whatever it is. We're in the same position, getting paid the same, but I actually should not be in this position. Mm -hmm. I should have actually been promoted before. And so there's just so many different nuances. So yes, pay equity and doing the analysis is one thing, but then let's also look at trajectory. Let's look at job architecture and who gets, you know, who's in what role, all of this stuff works together. And so when we're as part of the needs assessment, it's really digging into all of those things so that we're creating the right solutions. Maybe it's not a pay analysis or equity exercise you do. It's a restructuring and re-leveling exercise that you need to do. Um, I've worked for organizations and heard of organizations that systematically start women of color specifically at lower levels than other people. So I, you know, you look on LinkedIn and me and someone else, we look very similar, graduated at the similar year, all of that. I came in at a level X, they, they've come in at level Y, which is above me. Why is that? And so there's just so many different nuances and aspects that we need to look at before we start throwing solutions out there. Let's understand what the core problem, concern, challenge really is. And there's just so many, you know, as you're saying this, I'm thinking, um, you know, obviously I am white and I have not experienced, you know, the levels of discrimination on on so many different levels. But I'm thinking when you're talking about pay and talking about like entry level, you know, discrimination and coming in at different salaries, I'm thinking about the ways that earlier in my career I didn't negotiate or I, you know, got paid less than, you know, somebody else coming in at another level and, and years and years and years ago at a job, I remember there was a man who worked under me with a title under me and he made more money. And when I found that out and I went to my boss about it, one of the things she said was, well, he went to Columbia and you didn't, you know, like he went to a better university than me and that it was like, oh, we're going, and I can see that kind of thing playing out in a lot of hiring, you know, these decisions is, oh, they went to this college or they have these other, you know, these, these kind of biases that creep in and, you know, and, and inform inequality from the beginning that then just that sets you up, you know, you're making $20,000 less than somebody at the start and you have all of that to gain, you know, to try to make up for throughout the process. Right. And so a solution there, what you like, let's say we did a needs assessment and this was uncovered would not again, be nothing to do with necessarily uh, like equal pay for equal work because Technically, that person is getting their the level they're doing they're doing they're getting paid for the level they're in. But it's more about what's our criteria for pricing our roles. So this is in the recruiting aspect. We need to talk about that and that the role should be priced based on the actual work. And it doesn't matter where you went to school or what company you're coming from. It's about the role. So this is that's I think that's a really good example of pinpointing the issue and creating a solution for that specific issue. And so all of this can sound like so daunting. I'm, you know, to anybody who, who has good intentions of, I, I realize our, our company is not doing what we need to be doing. 
and we need to do things better. Okay, I, you know, how, where do we where do we start? Kind of like this is a great like primer for our next you know couple of episodes as we kind of dive in deeper and try to find solutions and and some places to start. But when we're looking at something like race in the workplace, what's a good place to to dive in? <sighs> <laughs> that's like that's so much in that sigh. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a lot. And so I think like, if I think about all of the different um, issues that I've worked on and conversations I've had, I think career advancement opportunities for people of color, I think this is a good place to start. Um, how you're like, what are the, the norms in a culture? So how do we, is there tone policing? Is the, are we, um, over-indexing on a certain profile or personality type? Um, are we saying, oh, you need to do this to be able to fit into our culture? Like things like that, mm -hmm. um, I think are places to start. But one of the, the key areas, and it's not the only area, so I want to put that caveat there, but it's really around hiring and representation. I think mm -hmm. for a lot of organizations, that is a, um, a really a good place to start because it increasing the the representation the number of people in specific racial groups at your organization um it helps right however there's there's a lot of nuance and things that are there and so i really want to be clear that it's not only hiring because if you you can hire all the people you want if the the culture is not good and people are not retained and they don't feel like they belong they're just going to leave so you just have mm -hmm. like a leaky bucket it doesn't matter how many people you bring in however when we're doing the hiring i think that if, if that is an area to focus i think that's a really good place to start it can be really impactful however you have to do it in a way that is going to be equitable in and of itself. And so it's not, as we mentioned earlier, hiring everybody for entry-level roles and then our leadership team still looks the same way it is, but mm -hmm. really being deliberate and intentional about where are the gaps, uh, where can we fill those gaps, where what does our leadership level look like, our manager look like, who's in our HR, who are gatekeepers, who are at the entry level, just all of it, and, and really creating a strategy around hiring um, into those all of those areas in a more equitable way so that we have increased representation. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's kind of logically not not that it's exactly a, a step, but you know, it doesn't exactly go in in this this order. But you can't really work on equity and inclusion if you don't have diversity first, right? Yeah, and and that has that has come up a lot. It's really interesting that you say that because I've worked and I've had workshops and just talked to people and they want to do great things, but it's like there's no one here for us to try <laughs> to include. Like we can't we can't have an inclusive <laughs> environment of all of these white male coders. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so, absolutely, I think it's it's not necessarily a first and then second, but it's mm -hmm. these are things that should be we should be paying attention to at the same time. Absolutely, we should be increasing representation while increasing retention while making sure that we have the infrastructure that we talked about all of that stuff needs to be happening together it can feel easy for organizations to just start with hiring let's just get mm -hmm. more people let's go to hbcus historically black colleges universities let's do this and, and and hire all the people and then okay great we can be seen to be making changes um that's important but again there's other parts of the equation that that goes into it as well yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, that's if we're looking at a place to start in this, you know, humongous topic, 
I think that that feels like a good place for us to start, which is is what we're going to focus on in this episode. We're going to talk about this so-called pipeline problem and this excuse that that companies fall back on of, well, you know, we want to do better. We have these good intentions. We just don't know where to start. We can't find the people to begin with and or the only people that we can find are entry level as if there are no people of color that are HR professionals, as if there are no people of color in and upper management that have qualifications for upper management. So we're going to start there with this episode. Dorian, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for coming back. I'll probably have you back again as we work through these, these really complex topics. Thanks for having me. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Joining me now is Porter Braswell. Porter is the CEO and co-founder of Jopwell, an HR tech platform that helps diverse students and professionals unlock opportunities for career advancement. Porter, thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Kate. Okay. So the focus of this episode is the so-called pipeline problem, the enduring notion that the reason why there are so few people of color at many big companies is that there just aren't enough qualified candidates. Uh, Your company is focused on helping exactly those candidates find those jobs. First, I just want to like back it up to, to big picture. Where does this notion of the pipeline problem come from and why does it persist? So there's a lot there. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack with it. Um, Where to begin? So I would say that typically people will say that there's a pipeline challenge because historically, when you're looking to recruit for open opportunities within your organization, uh, your JDs typically reflect these very specific boxes that essentially are saying, if you don't work directly in the same seat at our non-diverse competitive company, then you're not qualified to work here. And the problem is that when these types of JDs go out into the world and you're only looking to recruit from, again, the people that you compete with, and if they are not diverse, then it's the circular argument, if you will, where where you'll say, see, we're trying to recruit from a more diversified applicant pool, But really, are you? Because you're only saying that you're qualified if you work in that exact same seat and there's no diversity there. And so I think historically, especially within the tech industry, that's been where this pipeline challenge has, where the conversation has basically resided. Now, it's wrong because to be qualified for an opportunity, like let's take a step back and really examine what does it mean to be a qualified candidate? What are those skill sets that you actually need to thrive within that given capacity? Uh, What types of experiences would be valuable that you can bring to the table? Because the fact of the matter is, there's amazing qualified talent in all different types of industries that sit in very different types of seats. And so if there's a real desire for a company to diversify its applicant funnel, take a step back from the JD, really figure out what types of transferable skills can you leverage to be successful in that given capacity and be incredibly more thoughtful and intentional about what you're basically writing to keep people away. Because historically, that's how JDs behave. It's meant to keep people away, not to attract people. 
And so when you say, so JD is job description, right? Yeah. Yep. So when you say like the, the job description is written to keep people away, do you mean that it's, it's written to, you know, use those kind of limiting words that when an applicant looks at it, they say, oh, I'm not qualified. And they're kind of taking themselves out of the pool. Or are you, or is it also, or maybe instead of that, that the, maybe the applicant tracking system, you know, the, the things go through the, the computerized filter. Oh, you don't have account manager on your resume. So we're weeding out your resume or the human person looking at it, you know, weeds it out. I think at times, you know, given that corporate America in general, you're drinking from a fire hose. There's so much to get done at all times that it's easy to, and, and this is what we see often, you'll literally go to your competitor's website to look for the types of verbiage that they're using for similar jobs. And then you take those and then you put them out into the world. And so if you look at your entry level kind of SaaS sales job, it's all the same language for all the same companies. Mm -hmm. And, and again, if you don't work in that exact seat, then you're not qualified air quotes qualified for that mm -hmm. opportunity on paper. But instead of saying that you need, for example, five years of SaaS experience selling into organizations, what do you actually need? Because that's not what you actually need. What do you actually need to be successful? You have to be able to clearly communicate and articulate a creative story around why, why certain products will perform well within that given organization. You have to be a problem solver. You have to work well within a team setting. You have to be able to think outside the box. Well, if that's the case, Great, you can recruit people who have a consulting background, maybe people who've worked at a law firm, people who've worked in finance, uh, you know, teachers. There are a variety of different backgrounds that you now open yourself to when you change or remove certain requirements that historically have kept people out. So it's a, a lot of it sounds like, you know, and this is something, as you say, like everybody, every organization is guilty of at some point, it's kind of laziness. It's like, oh, I want this exact job. So I'll find somebody who's had this exact job before or had the job before this job that is the next stepping stone to it rather than taking the time to look at a wider pool of, like it's more work, right? It's more work to look at a wider pool of applicants or think more creatively about skills. And so it's, it's the easier thing to just say, well, I tried and just nobody diverse applied, right? And, 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 you know, to, to be explicitly clear about this, this is not lowering the bar or mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. is not, you know, what well, we're bringing in people that don't deserve to work here. No. In fact, what you're doing is that you're bringing in people with a more varied background that once they learn that exact skill set that might take them a month or two, they're not only going to come to the table learning that skill set, they're going to have other things they can bring to the table from their different experiences. And that's the value of diversity. They're going to look at things differently. And so it's not lowering the bar. It's in fact, raising the bar and bringing in people that are capable of doing more than what you put out into the world as that boiler template JD. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, the other part, so we're talking a lot about you know, people mid-career and and beyond, people who have already had a job. But I think the other big part of the pipeline problem that gets talked about a lot is 
um, is the college pipeline is saying, oh, well, you know, there's just not enough black engineers or something like that. And and what I've encountered, we've encountered in our coverage a bit, and I'd love to hear what, what you think about this, is the the pipeline of alumni networks, right? Or the pipeline of I'm going to, I went to Stanford and I'm going to hire only, you know, who do we, who do I know from my alumni yeah. network who also went there? Or I see it on a resume and like, oh, I recognize that college. They must be good. And and shutting out, you know, all of the other the state schools and and the historically black universities and and kind of the not the the go to colleges to to look for candidates from. So, OK, so we're, we're <laughs> you're like, oh, let me get, on, okay. I got things to say about this. <laughs> OK, so when we talk about again, when we go back to like the pipeline challenge. So the first the first area were the things that we discussed already around job descriptions and and really those descriptions keep people out. They don't invite people in. The second issue, and this gets into your question, is that historically, a lot of larger organizations have partnered with nonprofits that specifically focus on Black, Latinx, Native American students and entry-level professionals. And it's those organizations are incredible organizations within the community. They're very much needed and they provide incredible value because there's coaching, there's training, there's mentoring. And of course, all of those ingredients will lead to an individual having hopefully an incredibly successful career and then doing that for the next generation. So that process and that model is very important. However, all of those organizations combined, and there, there are hundreds of them combined, represent less than 1% of the actual addressable community of Black, Latinx, Native American students and professionals that are qualified for opportunities. Because you have to, A, be knowledgeable about those organizations, and then B, and most people probably aren't aware of this, you have to apply to get into one of those organizations. Mm -hmm. So at the corporation level, it's easy to say, oh, we work with 10 organizations and we're still not seeing the talent so therefore the talent must not exist no you're working with 10 organizations that represent less than half of a half of a half of a percentage point of the actual addressable community of folks that would be qualified so i think there is that disconnect because people are deploying capital people are trying to move the needle but they through many partnerships are still not seeing the breadth of candidates that are available, which is why we built Jopwell. Jopwell is the network of all of these networks. And, you know, with the community that we have, we have the largest community of Black, Latinx, and Native American students and professionals. And so we believe that, yes, we have a lot of members on our platform that are part of, you know, these organizations that do fabulous work, but the vast majority of our community are not a part of those networks because those networks can't contain and do the hands-on coaching, training, and mentoring at scale, whereas a platform like Joppo can. So this whole myth around the around the pipeline challenge is why we built Joppo. Mm. You know, we're from the community. I know these organizations. I know how this space works. We just felt that there had it. There there wasn't a platform for everybody, and uh, and that's that's what we set out to do. So. You know, it's not a pipeline challenge. The talent has always existed. It's just been a matter of how do you get access to that talent and how do you authentically connect and engage with that talent? Uh, and that's what we focus on. That's interesting because it sounds like there's there's um, there's kind of like the, the people who are 
for lack of a better phrase, like not awake, you know, they're like, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to my alumni network. I'm going to my, you know, the colleges that I know I'm asking the people, the homogenous people I already work with, who do they know? And they're totally shut down and they're, and they're saying, well, you know, there just doesn't happen to be any diverse candidates in that pool. And then there's the people that you just talked about that are like, well, we're making an effort. We tried, we partnered with these organizations and we're seeing some people, but we're just not finding enough. And then you're saying kind of that third step is, by the way, that you're only seeing this tiny percent. There's all of these other candidates you're not even aware of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so another approach, you know, that I've heard a lot of companies take, um, and, and fast company is one of them. Uh, we've established a double Rooney rule, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, mm -hmm. it's the promise of interviewing at least two candidates from underrepresented groups for any open position is, is something like that is a company in, installing a double Rooney rule or something similar effective? Have you found other practices, you know, general rules effective in, in hiring practices? So I think that it's a great initiative, but if it's not surrounded by a comprehensive strategy where that's just one kind of point in a much broader strategy, then it's not going to succeed. First off, organizations need to explain the why why are they doing a Rooney rule? How do they get to where they are? Why is why is a Rooney rule important to the organization? What are the outcomes they're they're expecting to see? What are other things they're looking to do to further the chances of an underrepresented individual making it through the funnel, not just getting the interview? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes companies are reluctant to start with the why because that is where it can potentially be uncomfortable. And I think oftentimes companies assume that employees understand why diversity matters and why they're going to do certain things. And so they don't want to really step into that. But I think the first step has to be explaining the why and then rolling out strategies and a clear kind of timeline of when you're going to execute on, on, on those different strategies. And so the Rooney rule can be one of those strategies, but there has to be things before it and after it so that it's not in, in isolation because the Rooney rule by itself, it's great, but you're not going to see material change that way unless you have other strategies that allow Rooney rule to become successful. And, and what are some of those other, other strategies and what's an example of, of a why that a company would come up with? Yeah. Well, so, you know, if, okay, so let's start at the why. So when discussing diversity initiatives, when you say the word diversity, that can mean anything. It can mean socioeconomic backgrounds, it can mean ethnicity, it can mean sexual orientation, it can mean gender, it can mean anything. So first thing is to explain, while we value everybody and everybody can make an argument as to why they are diverse, we are specifically focusing on Black, Latinx, and Native Americans because they are the most underrepresented groups within our workforce. Mm. So it's not to say other groups are not important, and it's not to say that we're not gonna focus on those other groups down the road, but right now, especially in this political and social climate that we live in, we have to triple down all of our efforts on this unique pain point. It's like solving any other product challenge, right? There are many, there are many things a company can push out, but you have a product roadmap, you have certain initiatives, you rally everybody around that one particular feature, you get that out, you learn from it, and then you move on. And so I think this is one of those examples. So when you first identify that specific vertical, 
you explain the why behind it, then I think you get people to join in and rally around, okay, we are all a part of being a part of the solution. Then when you get into the talent acquisition kind of funnel, yes, the Rooney rule again is a part of that, but let's start up top. How are you getting your brand out in front of a more diversified audience? How are you talking about the opportunities that exist? We mentioned in this conversation, job descriptions. Well, how are you changing your job descriptions? Once those individuals and you get a more diverse applicant funnel are coming into your organization and they're interviewing, what's their experience? Who are they seeing? Are they seeing people that look like them? Are they talking or is the interviewer incorporating the values, especially about uh, as it uh, pertains to why diversity matters to your organization within the conversation? What are the questions that the interviewers are asking? Are they pulling out stories from individuals to show you know, their unique backgrounds and the unique skill sets they bring to the table that may not be captured on a resume? When those individuals leave, how are you following up? How are you communicating? Are you recruiting them? Are you being passive? Are you being aggressive? When you hire them, what's the onboarding like? How are you ensuring that they're getting a part of the fabric within an organization? So in that, so in that example, right, we started with the why, we look at the talent acquisition funnel and the Rooney rule comes in place, sure, but there are things above that and things below that that companies have to focus on. Yeah, that's, all of that is so, so valuable. And I think a lot of companies don't think all of those steps, right? They're like, well, I'm making an effort. I'm trying to interview more diverse candidates. I'm doing my part. And I think you've laid it out perfectly. There's so many other pieces to it. And the inclusion part, and we'll get to that in a little bit, is the is the kind of the last piece where even if you get all of those other parts right, so many companies falter there. But I want to talk for a second about the candidate side of it. So I'd love to hear your advice for minority candidates looking for jobs. Um, you know, we've covered before that there's been so many studies that candidates with like, you know, again, air quote, non-white sounding names get fewer interviews, um, you know, just get, get kind of biased, weeded out on their resume level. But now that companies are trying to make more of a concerted effort and workplaces are trying to focus on diversity more in hiring, should candidates kind of highlight that they are a diverse candidate somehow in their resume or in their cover letter? So... There's a lot, there's, again, there's, there's a lot to this. Um, and so I would say the first thing is even the language. Language is so important. And even the term minority, it's one of those words that is kind of like a little scratching on like the chalkboard now because mm. it, it means minor, right? You're mm. lesser than. Mm. And so I think, I think from an organizational perspective, how they're even communicating and attracting people from underrepresented backgrounds is important. And if you and if they are using terms or language that is, you know, a bit outdated, that is a signal to a candidate that they're probably not going to feel like they belong when they get there. Mm. So thinking through language is incredibly important. And for that individual, for a person from an underrepresented background, when they when they are coming into that conversation, I think that their difference or their uniqueness is their superpower. Mm. So what I encourage uh, people from the Joppel community, and, and I, I wrote a book on this uh, called Let Them See You. It's, it's how, do you take, how do you take the things that make you different and turn them into your superpower? So as a person from an underrepresented background, yes, I can talk about the job and what I need to do to become successful, 
But what I can also bring to the table is a unique perspective that most likely the people I will be joining, joining, they don't have that perspective because if you look at the stats, it, I'm probably joining a majority white team. And so I could bring a unique perspective, especially again in this political climate that we live in and social climate that we live in, of helping us understand how to connect with a growing consumer base, how to connect with clients, how to address internally what's going on within this country, because you, you should be able to talk about that. And so you bring this unique perspective that's incredibly valuable to a, to a company, but that individual has to feel comfortable sharing that and really owning their story and, and what makes them special. Uh, now that takes practice, that takes a lot of confidence, that takes having a support network that builds you up and says, you know, you are worthy and you should share those stories, but it's also on the recruiters to pull those stories out. Mm. Thank you, by the way, for, for pointing out my, you know, that's, that's something that I hadn't even considered when I said the word minority, but that's, that's a very important thing to, to point out. And thank you for, for pointing that out for me, but, but yeah, I, th I think the highlighting the, the different perspective that, that people bring is important. Yeah. On both ends, as you say, you know, I, I think what's important though is, is even with like the term, and this is why it's so important to start with the why, mm. right. And so obviously you didn't mean anything by saying the word minority. Mm -hmm. Obviously we, you cover these topics as something you're passionate about. And I think for organizations, when they don't explain their why, and they're not thoughtful about why diversity matters within an organization and what they're going to do when they stumble, which they will. And they say something, a, a senior leader or CEO says something that's really off color. There's no benefit of the doubt, right? If there's no, if there's no intentionality behind thinking through these initiatives and owning it at the CEO level, you're setting yourself up for gotcha moments. Mm. But it's so incredibly important for CEOs, especially the senior and most leaders within these organizations to exercise these muscles of language and to be a part of it and to learn and to surround themselves with diverse individuals and perspectives and to ask those vulnerable questions um, that they you know, may not necessarily feel comfortable asking because you'll be more educated uh, in how to approach this with the changing demographics. And so I, I just think that, you know, corporate America uh, really needs to like get into these, get their, roll their sleeves up, but specifically CEOs need to roll their sleeves up and get more comfortable. Yeah. And, and, you know, that it all touches on something that we, we covered when we did an episode on microaggressions of, of the intentionality behind things and, and, you know, the, the knee jerk reaction that I think a lot of people have of like, well, that's not what my intention was. My intentions were good. And it's like, your intentions don't matter that, you know, what you say matters and, and what you do matters and, and owning it matters. Absolutely. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit and that kind of actually feeds into the idea of, and we touched about it a little bit, the inclusion part of the equation. So we, you know, we're focusing a lot on pipeline problem and hiring in, in this episode, but you know, I think where a lot of where we've seen a lot of companies falter, especially, you know, the, the big tech companies when they're reporting their diversity numbers, which are always, you know, disappointing year after year. And they've been doing this since what, 20, you know, 14, most of them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, where they falter, if they manage to to get more representation in their company, where they falter is the inclusion aspect of it. And you touched on it a little bit when you were talking about you know, the, the kind of the why and the, and the following the process through, 
what's your advice for companies when it comes to retaining diverse candidates and kind of and also the career advancement part of it? You know, I don't think there's a there is a single answer that yeah. would solve the inclusion problem. I, I, my perspective on it uh, and really the things that we are. I, you know, the things that we, that we constantly are pushing out is the simple notion that if you want your employees to perform at their highest levels, so that you produce amazing products and you sell things and you scale and you win, you have to create an environment that people feel motivated, that they feel motivated to show up every single day to do their job to the best of their ability. And when you have a workforce that is motivated to do that, then everything else, the results are gonna be incredible. And in order to get to that stage where people feel motivated to do their job, which really is the heart of driving a more inclusive culture, is that you have to figure out what is it that your employees or your company wants? What is that culture? You know, again, using what we, the climate that we live in today, we're having this interview, you're literally in my apartment and I'm in your apartment. And so when we are having these conversations with our colleagues over Zoom or whatever platform, we're literally in the space that is private to us. And it's incredibly difficult to turn it on and off of, you know, I'm at work now or no, I'm, I'm at home or I'm at work and I'm at home. And so when this country is talking about the racial injustice that has always existed or when this country is living through what we saw in the beginning of 2021 with the capital being attacked or today with the inauguration going on if you don't welcome those conversations into your organization you will not have motivated and fully tuned in employees because you can't turn on the tv and see what's going on in this country right now, and then turn it off, pivot to another meeting and be fully present. You can't do that. So companies have to figure out how to create the space and the time for those that want to engage in those dialogues that they know that they have that space to do so at work. You can't turn it on and you can't turn it off. That's just the world that we live in. So each company has to figure out their unique structure and process to welcome those dialogues in their in their workplace virtually, but do so in a way that moves the culture forward. And that's for each company to figure it out. Porter, thank you so much for joining me. Awesome. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Porter Braswell is the CEO and co-founder of Jopwell. He also hosts the Race at Work podcast at Harvard Business Review. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. If you liked this podcast, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen.